0: Thomas and Frederick. The the with Thomas and Frederick. With Thomas and Frederick.
1: Welcome to State of the Franchise, the podcast that talks about franchises of all shapes, sizes, backgrounds, genres, and types. I am one of your hosts, Tom Stadler, here as always this week with my fellow co-host, Fred Dakin. Fred. How are we doing over there?
2: I'm doing good, man. I'm excited to be on this episode with you because we're doing something special today.
1: We are indeed. We're doing our first maybe uh, of the time topic. Uh, Maybe not of the time. I guess it's more just a reaction to an event that happened, right?
2: Yes, definitely. Uh, We're going to be talking about William Freakin, a director who I know a lot of people know from The Exorcist who passed away recently, there's been a lot of videos popping up with him doing uh, just discussions, talking about his films, and I think you threw out the idea that we should maybe do an episode on him, and I was super into that.
1: Yeah, well, it definitely felt like it was the right timing to go after somebody who has a very rich library and one that I really had not been able to explore as deeply as I ever wanted to. And it's kind of unfortunate that it takes an event like somebody passing away to be like, "Okay, I'm going to finally explore all their work and see what they're about. And you're like, oh, man, now I'm really bummed that he's not going to be able to make more. Although I do think he has an unreleased movie that's going to be coming out later this year.
2: Oh, wow. I didn't even hear about that. I had uh, been watching a lot of Al Pacino movies, filling in those gaps, and I watched Cruising, and I knew that he directed that. And it was like a week or two later that he died. It was like very close. So it was kind of weird that he, like, I hadn't given him too much thought. The only thing that I always think about with Freaking is he gets his name put up there with best horror directors. And it's only because he's really only, and he's only really made one horror movie.
1: Yeah. Which it is funny because you look at, yeah, his, his whole, uh, work, you know, his all like, uh, whatever his compendium, if you will, like it's very, I don't know, almost more like action or like kind of like cop thriller oriented. Right.
2: Yeah, I feel he does like heightened crime movies. Yes. But he's not afraid to throw the schlock on, which makes that's what I think he's compelling. He's kind of like this elevated filmmaker while also being like kind of like a blockbustery filmmaker. Even like his movies like Exorcist, Sorcerer, they're all kind of blockbustery, but still they're talked about up there with some of the greatest films ever made.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I think there is something that I know we can dive into it when we finally start talking about all of his uh, different movies. But in a way, The Exorcist is sort of a mystery crime thriller, at least in how it proceeds, right? Because at first, we're not really sure what we're seeing is, like, full-on possession, right? We're seeing, like, all the testing and everything they're doing, and it's almost like they're trying to unravel what's going on with this girl, down to the point where it's like, oh, oh, we've removed all other doubt. This must be <laughs> demon possession.
2: Definitely. And I, I actually thought about that when I rewatched it this week.
1: Cool. I want to hear uh, your your thoughts on that then, especially as we get into it. Um, but as far as William Freakin' is concerned, so I know you said you were diving into more of Pacino's work recently. Do you recall what was your first exposure to Freakin'?
2: Honestly, I think it's kind of uh, like the way I said earlier, I knew his name was tied to The Exorcist, and The Exorcist is a movie that I feel you know by name growing up, If especially if you're a film person or a be, you know, eager-to-be film person, this is something you do want to watch, and I remember seeing, and I think I told you that, for a while, I felt it was like the scariest film ever made. And I still think it could be, but it's it's hard to rate that nowadays. I don't I don't get as scared as I used to. I don't I don't yeah. like that. But um <laughs> definitely I only really tied him to that movie. But then later in life, I remember seeing Bug and knowing that it was the same director as um, The Exorcist and then Killer Joe which was a movie that I watched and it's very intense movie. And that was the time where I realized, Oh, well, like, what about those other movies? I remember going back and watching the French connection and some of the other stuff. I haven't gotten to get to all of them. We were just talking about this day. He has so many films that we didn't even get to touch on, but I'm probably going to watch.
1: Yeah. And I guess for anyone who's not familiar with Friedkin, you know, it's important to note that yes, the exorcist is probably his most well-known work, but I would say arguably a lot of cinephiles will be more familiar. As you kind of mentioned, the French connection was one. Um, and I think there are a couple other movies that if had, they been given the proper, maybe reception or love at the time would be more synonymous with him. And maybe cruising would have been on there or to live and die in LA, which was, quite the movie i remember there being a lot of talk about killer joe years ago and then it just faded until he passed away recently <laughs> and then mm-hmm. i was like oh yeah that movie so you have seen that though huh
2: yes it has been a while but there are scenes that stick out in my head it's uh written by tracy Letts, the actor and it's based mm-hmm. on one of his plays oh, interesting and it's it's um it feels like a play in a good way and um it, it came out kind of around the time of the reconnaissance, and it has Matthew McConaughey in it as like kind of the bad guy of it oh, and playing wow. a pretty like disgusting character and it's just kind of a movie that definitely got lost I think it was mostly because it had an NC-17 rating which when I watched I didn't really remember anything being too graphic i mean it was based off of a play i mean i don't know like how graphic could have been but i don't remember anything being that bad about it
1: yeah i guess i don't know enough about it to speak to it other than i know it was a little racy for the time but what was racy for 2011 might not even be you know on the radar for the same way that some movies are now because I don't know. I think that there's always a sliding scale as time goes on, and more people make movies like, oh, I don't know, basically anything that. Uh, uh, what's our guy's name who made uh, the Fly Cronenberg? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he comes out with, uh, oh, what was the one last year with Vigo? Um,
2: oh, um, Eastern, not Eastern Promises, but uh, Crimes of the Past, Crimes of the Future.
1: Yeah, and what a weird. <laughs> Sorry, I don't even know what I watched in that movie, but yeah, I think there but there's a lot of what Freakin did even at his time, just to kind of tie it back, that really did feel way ahead of itself i mean from the exorcist to even some things we see in to live and die in la and then i think especially talking about a movie like cruising and i'm really glad that you watched that and could speak to it because i'm very curious to hear how a movie like that is received now as a fresh watch versus um how it would have been back in like 1980 when it came out um because i think for me too, it was definitely the exorcist was the first exposure, right? You go down your your horror journey. I feel like this has been a common thread the past couple times that we've had a podcast here. I was talking about our horror journey, which is a, I think a proper topic here going into October. But, you know, we definitely see the threads of how... The exorcist, you know, informed a lot of horror movies that came after, it, and a lot of people wanted to get into this more supernatural idea. And I think even these slasher films kind of almost became more supernatural once they realized, like, oh, yeah, what if you tried to blend the two? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I just remember, yeah, coming across The Exorcist, and it was spooky. <laughs> I mean, you just, you don't forget your first time watching it. That's for sure. Definitely. You know?
2: One of the first times feeling like, uh, not just fear, but just the, un- being unsettled. Uh, that's oh yeah. Like the first time I remember that feeling <laughs> from a movie
1: where it's almost like though. And the, the enemy, so to speak, or the, the, the evil pr- thing in that movie <laughs> is not <that> something. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> the proper name for the demon, if you will. Um, is not something that you can just board off with like, you know, a gun or anything. It's like, no, you, I don't know. You just got to be not <laughs> susceptible. I right. don't know. It's weird. Um, But it's still, it's a, it's definitely a movie that's going to be, you know, the first on a lot of people's journeys, but then I feel like his name really started to come back around again when I got to college and we did a lot of studying about the French connection and we had to watch the movie. And I remember, The first time I watched it, it really didn't, you know, resonate with me. But it is one that I remember a lot about because a lot of the shot composition, a lot about the story structure and like what a well-crafted movie it was. And I was like, huh, I guess this guy really knows his stuff. So it's kind of from that point that I just sort of always would know it. I'm like. "Hmm, Oh, he did this movie, too. Hmm." And then, yeah, then we get to a point now where. He passes away at age, you know, uh, what was he, eighty seven? And it's like, wow, it's that's an eternity for some people. And he filled it all with with movies. So it's it's gonna be fun to explore.
2: Mm-hmm. And it was just such a crazy time for him to pass away because, um, through like just like film, I was gonna film Twitter, film X, whatever you want to call it that day. I remember, <laughs> like, as you like watch stuff and like look it up you tend to see like things that are similar show up. And there were so many videos even before he died of like, check out William Friedkin. He's kind of an Henry guy. (laughs) Like he is an interview. (laughs) And I kind of feel like that was bubbling at the ether when he passed away, that this guy was also kind of a character. He was also one of those kind of old school directors that would imply methods that were not, that you wouldn't want to use today that weren't good. But it is kind of funny when you hear him talk about it in interviews. Because, like, (laughs) uh, there's a scene in The Shining where, like, the priest hears the phone and he, like, is startled by it. And, like, in this interview, he's like, well, I heard, you know, back in the day they used to use guns to, you know, shoot a blank. And then that would really scare someone. And they used it for horses to, you know, get them in a scene. So when that phone was supposed to ring, I shot a blank <laughs> Like he, he just, you couldn't do that nowadays <laughs> and so, like he was definitely kind of that like bad example of filmmaking in some regards but he also yeah. like later in life definitely talks about that like yeah that was not the way to go about it especially you think about like sorcerer or even the French connection just like the danger in those stunts like I based on his interviews, he was not putting in the time and effort he probably should have, but it's some uh, high octane stuff. If you watch it.
1: Yeah, no, it really is. I think if you only know the exorcist, you would be shocked at the types of stuff that he was filming and the way that he was filming it. It feels so real and gritty. And it just was like, it, it I don't know. I, I in watching a lot of his movies recently here, I've really started to realize, man, this guy really knows how to capture human beings acting like human beings. Like my biggest pet peeve in a movie is watching somebody who is reading a book that like, you know, they would never read casually and they're doing it like in the middle of like they're, like, I don't know, like their lawn, like they're sitting in a lawn chair. It's like, nobody does this. Mm-hmm. Like, come on. You know, they're, they're sitting in like their bedroom or something, or they're sitting on the couch with like the TV on in the background. And I don't know. I just always appreciated the way he would stage people and really capture human emotion. It just really felt raw and real. And it, yeah, it's it's too bad that he passed. But I think to really understand him, Fred, we have to kind of go back to the start here uh, with a little history on Friedkin. So Freakin was born in Chicago, Illinois, on August 29th, 1935, to parents who were Jewish immigrants from Ukraine. So after attending his public schools in Chicago, uh, Friedkin enrolled at Sen High School, where he played uh, basketball, but he was not good enough to consider turning professional. But uh, maybe that might come back later because of a movie hmm. that he made. <laughs> so I had to include that in there. It might, uh, but yeah, he was, he was not really a, a good student. So, you know, he never really received any good grades and he just did enough to graduate, which he did at age 16 and went directly working into a mailroom at WGN um, immediately after high school. So, I mean, it's the the classic story of somebody kind of working from the ground up at, you know, a TV station, right. <laughs> just going and uh, figuring out their life from there yeah
2: and I think that um you can see a lot of his growth there, I would assume because he was filming live television, which was huge, a lot of shows a lot you know a lot of different shows during the week that he had to kind of direct set up once he worked his way up to that position and I think that's what made him such an interesting filmmaker was having that live t v experience and working like in kind of a Like, it sounds like it was Saturday Night Live all the time, (laughs) you know, except like it's not sketches or anything. It's, you know, written, uh, you know, TV shows or news or whatever. You know, it's definitely you got to you're working with not a lot of time and you're having to cover a lot. And that's probably what made him good at, like, shooting a car chase or something.
1: Right. Right. Because he really had to kind of feel that reality out. And I think he did a, a number of documentaries, too, in his early career. You know, and he, I wrote down that he directed one of the last episodes of the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, which if you've never seen the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, it was pretty well overshadowed by the Twilight Zone because the Twilight Zone was doing a lot of things. But I mean, there's a reason that Hitchcock was known as the master of suspense. And if you watch any of those uh, episodes, you will really get like an encapsulation of his style, too. And I do wonder how much of his work there influenced some stuff because there are moments in a movie like Sorcerer where you are feeling nonstop anxiety and suspense watching these guys drive these trucks to the jungle.
2: Mm-hmm. And I feel he is also that kind of stereotype of a filmmaker of the time where he worked his way up through that studio system and he talks about the movie that really changed everything for him. Citizen Kane. <laughs> and I'm just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I've, I've heard this before, which is a movie I haven't watched, but I've kind of been saving it to, uh, like, you know, for my maturity to, like, kind of reach a certain point. And I think I'm there now because hearing him talk about it and hearing him kind of uh, draw back to it uh, while talking about his own movies, I was like, well, maybe it's time to uh, whip out the old Kane.
1: <laughs> Rosebud. Got to learn what it's all about.
2: Uh, if, Which if, you know I already know sadly, but yeah. uh but that's it, the thing. I think it's going to be one of those experiences where I'm like, "Oh yeah, I've seen this movie without seeing it."
1: Yeah. I, I mean cuz it's so often parodied and it's so often referenced by other filmmakers, right? And I think what will be interesting, and you'll have to re- you'll have to tell me about it maybe when you get there. Maybe we'll have to share it a little bit on this podcast too. But I think you might be surprised how, yes, there's some stylistic influence in what Citizen Kane did. But I don't know that I would ever draw a direct line between Citizen Kane and certainly anything like the French Connection. Like Mm -hmm. there's definitely there's, there's stylistic parallels. But I would say in the way that he wants to shoot a movie, he's really doing something that feels a little more. I don't know. Just more. tactile. Yeah. Yeah. But almost it feels like it's like an early version of, of um, that shaky cam that they came up with for like the Bourne movies. Mm -hmm. Right. And got really popular in the aughts. Like that's almost kind of feel like what he was doing where, you know, Spielberg and uh, you know, Brian De Palma were kind of zigging. He was zagging a little bit. And I think that's what I've started to really appreciate about his work. Because then it was after he uh, had done a few years working um, with WGN, he went to Hollywood. And two years later, so it was about 1965, he left for Hollywood. And in 1967, he released his first feature film, which was called Good Times, starring Sonny and Cher, (laughs) which... He referred to later on as unwatchable.
2: <laughs>
1: Which based on the interviews that you're talking about and you're referencing feels very on brand for him to say.
2: Oh yeah. I recommend anyone check these out. Like, especially anytime he's done interviews with Nicholas Winding Reffin, the guy who made uh Drive, mm-hmm. and like really hasn't like hit anything else since. But the guy from Drive, the director talks like he's the next big filmmaker. He thinks he's such hot shit and freaking just like nails him to the ground every time and just makes fun of him
1: and dunks on him. It is the best thing ever. I love it. That sounds amazing. I really do need to watch more of his interviews. They, they were really something to behold when they started making their way around the social media atmosphere. So after making a few other films, which included adaptations of plays he had written himself, which were called The Birthday Party, uh, was one that um, he had adapted from a book, but then actually made a play out of it and then adapted that into a movie. He made The French Connection in 1971, which was the first really heavily awarded movie he made. Um, It won Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Director, Best Film Editing, and Best Adapted Screenplay.
2: It deserved maybe two of those. Yeah,
1: he <laughs> <laughs> um, was. It was also nominated for seven. Uh, Roy Scheider was uh, nominated for best supporting actor, and it also had a best cinematography and best sound mixing nomination. So, yeah, the technical awards, I believe. <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, do you want to dive into it right now?
2: Oh, we can. I don't know if you have or if you want to like go through piece by piece with the history, whatever yeah, you want to do. Let's 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 jump in, because
1: I think The French Connection is a movie that you can't talk about William Friedkin without talking about this movie. And because it is it's such a it's a movie that you study in film class and you see why when you watch a movie like that. Right. Mm-hmm. But I know you watched it more recently than I did. So what was what was your your take after taking it in recently
2: i liked it more when it was over not like i liked it when it was done no i just mean like because when i text i texted you like halfway through and i was like this movie's not really cooking for me Mm -hmm. and then uh there's a big set piece with the chase like a car chase scene and a chase on foot that is really something to behold and after that I was like okay I'm in but then the more I thought about it it isn't my favorite movie but it's kind of like the Casablanca of crime movies where it's like it's doing all the stuff that crime movies do like all through the 70s 80s 90s and even today like it has like one of the first scenes of like a guy testing the quality of a drug and it does it pretty great you know it's got one of the first intense <laughs> car scenes you know it's yeah. got um, like, I don't think there were a lot of movies unless you're watching just like Dragnet on TV where you're seeing like the cops take apart a car looking for drugs and like that whole world. But the stuff that didn't hold up to me is I didn't really, you know, I'm, I'm warming to Gene Hackman in my older age, but I did not get what the the love was for the Gene Hackman in this movie. I think he's good. But I don't like because he's the one that wins the acting Oscar, right? Yes,
1: he is. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I don't, I don't know. Like, I guess <laughs> we got like 50 years of Hackman doing Hackman. Maybe it just seems hack at this point, but I don't
1: yeah. know. <laughs> Gene Hackman is an interesting actor to begin with because he's always been kind of a curmudgeon, right? Like even mm. when he's on top of his game and on top of the world, he's he's never played by Hollywood's rules. Right. And
2: very prickly guy in that sense.
1: Yeah. And I think, I don't know. And maybe that was one of the part or one of the reasons that I just never felt like I connected with this movie was that I didn't think his performance was particularly amazing. Like it. It's a a movie that I know the the phrase is kind of getting tired now, but it's like, oh, this one walked so that everything else could run, right? Or something else could run. But I really do feel like the French connection to exactly what you were saying is one of those movies where it came up with a lot of the tropes that we know today but then you see other people doing a version of it that is, like, way more exciting now. I mean, you know, you could even argue the Mission Impossible franchise doesn't live without this movie existing.
2: Definitely. I would say that drive, I mean, with the time, you know, that being nowadays, like the Mission Impossible movies and French Connection being quite old, I would say holds up close to some car chases. I see, like, the one in Fallout fallout oh, yeah. has the advantages of you know new technologies this and that but i was i was thrilled when i was watching that uh car chase i will say but oh, yeah. i agree with you because like i'm not rooting for like the racist cop who's dropping like n bombs in the first 20 yeah, minutes like yeah and I don't think the character was interesting enough because, like, you can have a racist, bigot, like asshole character in a movie; he can still be an interesting character. But this wasn't it for me.
1: Yeah, right. It's not like there's a there. There's something behind it. It almost felt more something in tone with uh green book that <laughs>
2: yeah i feel like you need like a billy bob thornton to do like a role like that where you can still kind of like root for him well i don't want to say root for him at least watch him and be entertained while he's being the worst but i don't know i was not into because he's such a curmudgeon in the first place i'm like oh he's a curmudgeon a racist and kind of a bad cop like he's he cracks this case and gets into that. But like, he's really just going and he goes on, there's a whole scene where he goes in bar and just takes advantage of like room full of like black
1: people, like all of them, like 20 of them are in this room and he like messes with all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, there is something to, I think the statements that freaking was trying to make. And I think when you really read on his response to like, what, he thought his movies were about and kind of his take on movies today. You start to get more of a sense of, you know, he wasn't just throwing this stuff out there because it was of the time he was capturing that essence of the time, but I think he was sort of trying to shine a light on society that maybe kind of showed how ugly it was. Um, because yeah, I mean, I definitely have some thoughts on to live and die in LA, and one of the reasons I think that movie kind of worked like even now is how it aged, but um, we haven't gotten there yet. Mm -hmm. I just, but I think to go back to the French connection, it does kind of feel like, yeah, a movie very of its time, fresh off the civil rights movement where you still have a lot of these prevalent thoughts and types of people around,
2: Mm -hmm. and I think from his point of view, he is trying to highlight that, but. I think it's more for me like the cultural impact of that role has been like Popeye Doyle, one of the great roles. And that's his name in the movie, I guess I should say, is Popeye (laughs) Doyle. And they actually made a French connection, too, starring Popeye Doyle. (laughs) And it's (laughs) like, like, I just don't like the whole vibe of like, ah, one of the great characters, Popeye Doyle. And I'm like, eh, you know. Yeah. Not Not interesting enough to like keep with me but yeah they made a french connection too and i think it's it's not directed by freaking obviously but i no. think it's directed by someone pretty
1: pretty big i just mm-hmm. can't think of it right now. well i'll have to take a peek here i'm looking i'm not gonna look yeah i think it was um john frankenheimer
2: yeah. Oh, I can't even think of what he did, but he's a guy.
1: <laughs> he's a guy. Yeah, I thought but... I
2: was thinking John Borman. I had a
1: John. Um, no, he did the Birdman of Alcatraz, which is an interesting movie. Gene Hackman was in the French Connection, too, though. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought he would have wanted to touch anything with that, but. Yeah, I guess he was. He's Popeye Doyle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
2: it's yeah. like we didn't get enough of him. We're gonna do it one more time. Oh, I see the movie. I'm thinking of uh, he did the Manchurian Manchurian Candidate.
1: John yeah, oh, and the Island of Dr. Moreau, which can't can't can overlook the the weirdness of uh, of Mr. Marlon Brando there. <laughs>
2: oh yeah. yeah. That is that is a wild... And Ronan, the, the Robert De Niro uh, action movie. <laughs> a classic.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely... I don't know. There's definitely something commendable to not wanting to ever do a sequel to any of the movies you made. Because I think, you know, Freakin' definitely seems like a guy who was very much, I have told the story, I came to tell. It's not my story to continue if somebody sees another thing. Because it's like... It, I think he he puts a pin on all of these, right? Like he's never setting up like, oh, guess what's going to happen to Popeye Duel next? Right? <laughs> yeah. So like, no, he's like, this is the end of the story, like, and here you you take it as it is. So after The French Connection came out, won all of his awards, his next film was a little a little project that was called The Exorcist, which he adapted from William Peter Blatty's novel in 1973. The Exorcist was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, uh, including Best Picture and Best Director again. But this one only won for Best Screenplay and Best Sound. That's it.
2: <laughs> uh, the Sound is a great award because it's definitely got a lot going with the sound.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, just from the all the things they're doing with, like that uh you know reagan is making come out or pazuzu i'm sorry (laughs) i mean just the the sounds coming from there but just like all the the atmosphere throughout that movie is just so unsettling and it really is it's like all the the sounds and the feelings of just being in that room and you're like this is not a place i ever want to be personally Mm -hmm
2: yeah the stuff that stood out for me this time, like I really followed because you know, as you get older, you're like, mm, I like characters and movies and stuff, so I was really kind of focusing on the the main priest character, and like I guess I had never really paid attention to like his like kind of arc and plot through that movie with his mm-hmm. mother and the um there was like the person on the train who asked him for money. And how all that stuff comes back and is dropped in, like Pazuzu is saying, like saying things that he's hear, heard from other people. And that, that actually added another layer. Like the thrills didn't stick with me this time just cause I'm revisiting, but I definitely, I was like, Oh, this is like a pretty well-rounded movie. And the guy playing the priest is, he wasn't even an actor. I guess he was a playwright that, uh, freaking was like, you'd be good for this role. And, the guy who was originally cast was Stacy Keach, and they oh. had to pay off Stacy Keach. And I, I feel a little bad for Stacy Keach, but I think he would have been a little scarier than the Exorcist little girl in there. Like, uh, right? Like I think he scares me more than Pazuzu.
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I was going to say Stacy Keach. I'm trying to remember what he's even from. Like, <laughs> he's from having like one of those great faces and like
2: being in like action movies is, like the heavy but the one i the thing that i saw recently he's in uh like one of those anthology horror movies where mm. he wants to like he's balding and he wants to grow hair and he gets some treatment and then he's got hair everywhere it's like one of those great <laughs> 80s like creep show things
1: yeah oh yeah sure he's been in like a uh, born legacy Which, yeah, he's just some random man. Yeah, you bring uh, him to be like, Barn, what are you doing out there? But yeah, I think it's interesting to look at a movie like The Exorcist, and I wanted to kind of go down a route that you were talking about, because we wanted to talk a little about how it almost acts like a mystery thriller, but it does a lot of character exploration, and you really get to know who some of these people are, and you kind of get a sense for what their psychology is, even around this situation, which I think adds to the whole, like, Element of like, are we believing what we're seeing, or am I such a damaged person right now that I don't even know what's reality and what's not?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and I think when you see the 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 mentality and like how um, you know Father Karras is like dealing with all the stuff that's coming at him, you kind of get a better sense, right, for like mm, you know, is he even the right guy for this job? All like, right. <laughs> you know, but I think it's a that's what makes the, the movie so compelling. And it always does a thing that I think a lot of horror movies did, did for a long time afterward. And it's like we have to like dive into who these characters are, what motivates them. But it's done by screenwriters that don't really have a grasp for them type of storytelling Mm -hmm. and so rather than make a compelling horror movie you get a lot of schlock about you know somebody being like oh my mom died of cancer that's why i'm very upset at this situation
2: (laughs) you get like the goonies (laughs) monologue or whatever
1: yeah yeah or um what am i thinking of the in uh gremlins when she's telling the story about that's the one i meant not Goonies, gremlins (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Which it's just, yeah, Phoebe Cates doing that That monologue is hilarious because it's just, it's so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, but I think, again, it's another movie that it set the tone for so many things that came after it. But yet I think in this case, as opposed to French Connection, it did it a lot better than a lot of other movies have been able to do.
2: Mhm. Yeah, we're yeah. living in a year where we're getting another sequel to The Exorcist. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> yeah, I know you
1: are. <laughs> and I What's and if,
2: if we're talking Exorcist, I can't not bring up Exorcist 3 is a straight banger.
1: Is it though?
2: <laughs> it is. I rewatched it like 3 weeks ago. <laughs> and man, that is a good one. It's written by Blatty it's written by the author which is kind of cool and it brings back Harris and you know it's got it's got a uh, what's his name like Brad Durf come on
1: mm, yeah George C Scott I mean listen it's not got any shortage of people with it but it's just a matter of was it necessary I think one thing i did enjoy though that i read recently is that Freakin' was never like i never wanted to make a sequel but I'm happy that other people have found more stories out of this, and I applaud them for going and making more Exorcist movies. But he was clearly only ever interested in the one movie he did, and that was the only one he ever would have wanted to do. I don't know. It's definitely a a movie that, I mean, yeah, it, it sits with you for so many different reasons, but There's something I think that you said before, too, that, you know, the thrills didn't do it for you, but everything else kind of played a little bit better. And I think that's maybe why a movie like that resonates so much now is because it's really not about the horror so much as like, you know, it really is like your questioning of like your life, right? It's like you have this priest who's questioning like his faith, right? (laughs) Like it's just, it's not a story. Like this is not the person that you would want to run the exorcism, right? And you really dive into every piece that goes into it along with the, the scary scary parts of it. I don't know. And I think it's, it's interesting to juxtapose this and the French connection, which I mean, his two biggest movies, right? So you look at, these things, they kind of show a template for it. And it feels like everything that came after it either tried to copy every single thing that is in the playbook, or they tried to go the complete opposite direction to, to various results of success.
2: Yeah. I was just trying to think how many of uh, those sequels of the exorcist there's been, there's two, three, then there's two prequels, one written by the guy who wrote taxi driver, Mm -hmm. Paul Schrader. And then one done by Renny Harlan, like the 90s schlock action filmmaker, and they both star Stellan Skarsgård. What really? Which is just crazy. <laughs> yeah, and there are two competing prequels. One is this uh, done by the uh, pulse Raider who makes these kind of like really dark, methodic, like these guys have problems movies. And then there's like a... Blockbustery, schlocky version that came out. And yeah, Stellan Scarzard plays the young uh, Max von Sydow role in both of them.
1: Weird. Which is like, why is that the character you want to follow? I don't know. I mean, obviously, he knew the most about the ceremony or the, the ritual right, or whatever, but like, <laughs> I don't know. Was that really the person that you were very curious about after it? Right? Like, <laughs>
2: No, I didn't watch the Blockbuster schlocky one, but I did watch the Paul Schrader one and it's it's fine. It's it's definitely got some DNA of the first one, mm-hmm. but it's also
1: pretty, pretty slow and weird. Yeah. I mean it's just hard to replicate. Anything perfectly, but it's like if you can make a unique story, which maybe Exorcist Three does, and I'll have to rewatch it someday. I remember watching maybe the first half hour of that, and then I just couldn't. I couldn't keep going.
0: <laughs> I was too young no, though too no. for
1: it. I think I I seeked it out when I was like fourteen or thirteen, and that was just not the right oh. time and age for for Tom to be trying to watch that kind of sequel.
2: <laughs> yeah, I watched it during the pandemic, and I rewatched it. Like I said, like maybe like a month ago or so. And it's it's in, like, my top echelon of rewatchable horror movies now. Yeah. It's one that I will watch again. I <laughs>
1: like it a lot. <laughs> I like it. Um, I, I think, though, you know, one thing I did want to explore, though, more. So what is it about... These movies specifically, I know I kind of just said, you know, oh, they kind of set the playbook for later. But what is it about what Friedkin did stylistically or from a storytelling standpoint in both The French Connection and The Exorcist that you think really made him resonate so much with people at the time and why it still resonates now? Because, again, this is probably his – this is really his peak. Like, this is his mountain peak, even though we can argue for how many great movies he made after this that didn't get the same fair shake – I mean, this was really the top of his game. Like, he had a blank check after these two, right? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I just think he's doing transgressive 70s cinema in a more blockbuster, more uh, easily accessible way Mm -hmm. than, like, some people like De Palma or Scorsese were doing at the time. Right. Like, I think his movies have more speed than most of the directors working at that time.
1: Yeah, boy, that's a good... Good way to put it, too, because his movies never really slow down and let you breathe for too long, right? No, definitely. They got they got some—they move. Yeah, they do, which I love that he—you know, I think some directors get applauded for really letting a moment breathe. But I think he's able to do that without ever boring you. You know, it's like when he's giving you a moment to let the scene breathe or something like that, it's really to kind of see— the mental collapse of one of the characters (laughs) in the the thing, right? Definitely. Or it's, like, them kind of, like, they're 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 actually, like, something's happening to them in that moment versus, like, them happening to the movie. And I like that in that he's always understanding that the movie needs to be in perpetual motion because I think so many people fall in love with, like, setting a camera in front of, like, I don't know, like a like George Clooney and like watching him this act suave and sad or something like that. And it's like, but this isn't interesting. Clooney's never going to change. Like he's just going to be Clooney from start to finish.
2: Mm -hmm. And I think he can, he can really let his movies vibe. Like you really see it in sorcerer. And like, I would say in, from what I remember to live and die in LA, there's some really great just shots with the music And just giving you the world and, like, just that sort of film or cinematography that, like, you can just enjoy with the sound of.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that's definitely his calling card, is that each of his movies feel different. And I think that's why it is almost surprising. People are like, oh, he's a horror director. Because it's like, he's never really made another movie like The Exorcist, you know. And to that end, as much as people will try and draw a line between the French Connection and Sorcerer, they are not the same movie really at all. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know?
2: Sorcerer has more in line with Exorcist
1: for me. Yeah. And not in the way that you would think right. at Because, <laughs> yeah, I think, and I, I don't know if we need to give a plot summary for French Connection or Sorcerer. I mean, maybe for French Connection. I think maybe less people have seen that. I mean, Exorcist is all about you know a, a young girl who becomes possessed by a demon, and two priests need to come in and perform an exorcism in order to purge the demon from her body. Uh, French Connection. I mean, what what is the, like really the the plot summary? You got the fresh fresh take.
2: Oh God, I know this is what I can tell you. There's a French guy who has some situation with cars and illegal cars and drug smuggling through the cars. Mm-hmm. And there's Popeye Doyle and Roy Scheider who are on the case. And it's just them, like, it's literally uh, very procedural where they're just picking up, like, the leads following people. Most of the movie is them following this guy who gets them to that guy who gets them to the main guy, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Um, but it is a little convoluted. I don't know what the French Connection plot what well, was other than I know that this guy was smuggling drugs and cars had something
1: to do with it? <laughs> I mean, what I understand or what I recall is that the, it's based in, um, Marseille, the, the, the heroin smuggling ring that they're investigating. And so it's like, it's coming from there, but that's, that's the French connection. If you, will. ah yes. <laughs> but yeah, then after he makes the exorcist, you know, he, has a few movies that don't quite hit as much, um, but he does make Sorcerer, which I think a lot of people have reflected back on as a movie that really should be considered among his best. And boy, having not quite finished that movie, I can definitely say that was that is a ride of a movie because yeah. it. I'm interested to hear why you why you uh, draw a comparison between that and Exorcist. Can you speak a little more to
2: that? Uh, I see a lot of comparisons between Roy Scheider's character and Father Karras because there's definitely like two guys at the bottom of their own pits for two different reasons. I think Karras is more his faith in God and Schneider's is kind of like his faith in his position in the world because he kind of is a criminal in that one who has to live, like, outside, like, uh, I don't know the country that they're all in, but pretty much he has to leave the United States because he was part of a heist gone wrong. And just following this guy, it does follow a lot of different characters, but he's kind of the main focus throughout the whole thing. I just think you see fear and desperation and it ends very different for him i won't spoil
1: it for tom (laughs) but (laughs) i just can if you need to make a point
2: (laughs) i just think i see karis is slightly flawed Scheider is very flawed and just you following them in a um kind of a spectacular situation and how they deal with it
1: yeah
2: i will say without giving too much away at the end, it kind of goes almost horror movie towards the end or very oh, like wow. a psychological kind of reminds me also of like the heffa lumps and Hoozles from Winnie the Pooh and like uh you don't know about the Heffalumps and whoozles.
1: oh no I know about them I'm wondering how that makes a connection to this movie it seems fairly it goes <laughs> bonkers, bonkers <laughs> at
2: the end and it kind of reminds me of that in Winnie the Pooh where like the color goes super crazy like you'll see I'm excited
1: <laughs> okay
2: <laughs> and I will crap. say uh after a while because I had not seen Sorcerer until we decided to do this and it's it's on the list of movies that I, I will want to have a 4K of. I will revisit. It is... Um, best way to describe it is it has that feel of like a slow-paced 70s crime movie, but then it like cranks in the action and the last hour is like speed or something.
1: Yeah. Well, it's definitely... Yeah, it, it does have that slow burn at the beginning. Because I think even to start you're seeing a lot of these different crimes occur and you're trying to piece together why these things are connected and what they're leading to. And then it's not until you get to this part of this Latin American jungle, which I don't think they actually ever define where they are. They just know they're somewhere in Central America where it's a little underdeveloped. And it's somewhere where people who are trying to kind of escape a life of, you know, where they're they're of trouble may not be found right right and that definitely sets the stage because then once you really start to kick into the gear like you're saying the movie ups the tension and i mean the whole the whole conceit is that they're trying to transfer this, this dynamite across a jungle in these two trucks with the dynamite is extremely uh like sensitive so it's like if they make one like bad jostle which they jostled the fuck out of those trucks (laughs) i'm like there's no way that dynamite wouldn't have gone off (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) but we're all having fun here
1: (laughs) i know i know but i mean i think and going back to like i was talking about like he directed that episode or he worked on uh the alfred hitchcock hour like that is that was a masterclass in suspense, just watching these guys across bridges that are a little rickety and the tire goes down and you're like, Oh God, they're about to blow up. And you're just kind of on the edge of your seat every moment, even though, you know, you know, deep down, those trucks aren't going to blow up. You're just like, Oh, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. It, it
2: actually, you brought up mission Impossible for it really remind me of the end set piece in dead reckoning. I won't say what it is cause it's kind of new, but it has a similar vibe of like, okay, they're safe. No, they're not. No, they're not. Okay, they're good. Oh, no, they're not. No, they're not. You know,
1: like, <laughs> you like it's just like
2: good tension, you know?
1: Yeah. It did make me realize, though, that Scheider really loves to live in the elements in his movies, right? Like, I mean, I know he's in the French Connection where he's a little more straightforward, but it's like he's in this where he's in a jungle, he's getting dirty, he's getting sunbaked, he's getting rained on and jaws he's on a boat he's also getting sunbaked he's getting wet from the waves he's getting chased by a shark and then you got all that jazz where man he's really trying to escape the tensions of
2: broadway (laughs) well it doesn't work for the third one but i feel for the other two it's like man this guy looks like a leather purse. We need to put him in the sun, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> he is such an interesting actor too. I know we spent a little time on Hackman, so it should be, we should talk a little about Scheider because he is in a couple of these movies. And I mean, he definitely does his Roy Scheider thing of doing a lot with very little. And you just kind of know, just watching the way he like holds himself that he's just a dirtbag,
2: <laughs> For sure. That's why I like this one. I mean, I'll still, Him and Jaws is still one of my favorite, like all time performances, like of anyone. But Mm -hmm. I do like how much of kind of a dirtbag he is in Sorcerer, and just like how bad of a guy he is.
1: Like, yeah, he's really channeling um, Humphrey Bogart in like The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Have you seen that? Never seen. That's uh, so. I think if you watch that, you will almost find maybe more in common with that movie in Sorcerer than you would with. Uh, I mean the exorcist but I think obviously the exorcist is a great point because I think you do see the the struggle of the two characters like they are very similar and I think he does kind of let them ride a little bit on screen rather than you know and puts them in these impossible scenarios where they have to try and pull their shit together <laughs>
2: that is a great way of the connection is definitely those two characters and how they're portrayed is the connection
1: yeah And it's because I think he does that so well. And I didn't realize that was kind of his thing is that he is kind of like he recognizes something about heroes. And I say that with air quotes, the heroes are never really just altruistic heroes, right? right? Heroes are broken people. Sometimes they are just the person that is, you know, driving the story forward but they're not necessarily a a good person you know like and i think and, and you know and i think that maybe varies them a little bit because i would not describe roy Scheider even as an anti-hero in <laughs> sorcerer right. he's, he's just straight up just a guy that we're following but i mean certainly father Karis, you're kind of pulling for him even though you know he's sort of like a broken individual. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Like I definitely, you know, not to dunk on Hackman again, I definitely like and find Roy Scheider more interesting than Popeye Doyle in the first action. And that's a good example of a shitty, shitty guy who's compelling.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that is, I I mean, definitely one thing we see is we see like maybe the first time uh, and, and maybe not the first time, but we definitely see cops that aren't just like on the take that are just sort of like, bad dudes like you know and that's definitely a theme that carries over to live and die in la
2: and cruising
1: yeah well and i want to talk about that because that'll be next on our list and maybe we should just jump into that uh but between he did the great or um the brinks job which is what it's called based on the great brinks robbery in boston massachusetts which was a real life heist um, I don't know too much about this movie Are you familiar? I just know
2: it's uh, a crime comedy Starring Peter Falk And I'm like well You got my ticket I definitely want to check that out
1: Yeah Look I don't know too much about anything You know But I know that with this Brinks job
2: <laughs> don't, don't sit right with me <laughs> You still, Have you seen The In-Laws with Peter Falk And uh, what's no. the, uh, who, the other gentleman who passed I can't think of Alan Arkin
0: no, it's so good. It's that. like
2: Peter Falk, he's kind of like you don't know if he's FBI or a criminal and he's always like lying. They're all at like a dinner table and he's just like yeah, you know, I'm trying to do this whole product in, in the rainforest, but you know, there's a lot of red tape and I just love Alan Arkin has the best line of movie. He just goes there's red tape in the bush. <laughs> 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 you gotta watch it. It's, it's like one of those 70s comedies that like freaking movies moves. Like it's actually got pace.
1: Yeah, man, I could definitely watch Peter Falk and something like that. I just, you can't not think of him though as Columbo, right? (laughs) I saw a great meme recently to where he's like interrogating Don Draper from Mad Men. (laughs) he's like he's commenting on a scene where like dine's like third wife is like singing some french song and he's like i don't know enough about this zoobie zoo but i'll tell you what doesn't sit right with me so you said you were married twice but uh that's an odd thing for a guy who was married three times to forget that he was married to a
0: third
1: (laughs) wife oh gosh yeah uh, but yeah, the Brinks job, it sounds interesting. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a fictional retelling of the Boston Brinks Company robbery on January 17th, 1950, where $2.7 million was stolen, and the cost of the American taxpayers, $29 million, to apprehend the culprits with only $58,000 recovered. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I feel like that's such a freaking sort of plot, because it's like... Highlighting maybe the waste of resources by different systems (laughs) to, like, catch the criminals. Like, still feels very
1: much in his wheelhouse. Absolutely. Yeah. Peter Boyle's in this movie, too. That's great. Yeah. A little Paul Servino, too.
2: Ooh, who uh, also is in Cruising.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, good. Well, let's talk a little bit about Cruising because that was his next movie in 1980. And Cruising came out to a lot of... Blow back because of the subject matter of the movie. And it was protested pretty heavily during production because of that subject matter. Uh, do you want to provide a summary of the plot for that one?
2: Yes, it is about a string of murders. I think it's like 20 in gay BDSM clubs that um, it's just all these people are getting killed in different clubs. And you're going to have Al Pacino, who is a young police person. He's kind of like a beat cop who mats, matches a description of the potential killer. And he goes undercover at these clubs. Then, you know, he goes undercover as someone who's cruising. And he's going through these clubs. And it got a lot of blowback at the time on both sides. I feel like some people just didn't want to see, like gay people on screen like at the time because you know that those are the times those are still the times, sadly and also on the other side it was a lot of people challenged it for not being a good representation of gay people and i think the reason is the movie doesn't do a great job of saying this is a subculture of a much much larger culture Hmm. and i think it does have lines that saying this is like a BDSM club. This is like a club where sex is happening at the club and all that. But I think at the time people would paint that with a broad brush and put that on all gay lifestyle. Yeah. And that was kind of the big problem is everyone's like, oh, that's what they're all doing at these clubs. And <laughs> it's like, no, no, this is a very small group. But I will say on the flip side of this, this movie for when it came out actually handles these issues of how people treat gay people really poignantly for the time. Because if you watch movies from this time, they don't do that that well. On the flip side, I watched And For Justice For All, which was a uh, Pacino movie, and it has a trans character in it. And it's doing the thing where they're trying to highlight it and show like the abuse that the police are like putting on this person, but it's just not doing it in a way that I think is effective and shines a proper light. But I was actually kind of surprised of how modern and current cruising felt.
1: Mm. Well, I think it's always hard to put a movie that's 40, almost 45 years old into context like that too, because for the time, you know, what could have been considered progressive and, you know, trying to, you know, actually say something about that society still probably is being viewed through a lens that still was maybe not quite fully formed. Yeah. And, this could have
2: been someone's first movie with like uh homosexual stuff in it. And they're just going to draw like, Oh, that that's all it is, you know? Right.
1: Yeah. Cause it does sound like it's a compelling story. It does sound like it's really trying to do different things, but yeah, you're going to always have, you know, maybe not the most deft hand because it's somebody who doesn't have that lived in experience trying to speak to the thing. Right. And so it always comes across maybe a little bit, eh, like not, not dealt with as as delicately as it could be. Right.
2: Mm -hmm. And the um, movie really mostly focuses on how police would treat like unhoused people who may have been, you know, prostituting just to live and stuff, how they were being taken advantage of by the police if that's more of the focus of the movie, but like I said, it it you know it's definitely hard to parcel out what <laughs> I think he was coming from a good place doing it, but it still is just wasn't really the time maybe yeah to too, uh like ahead of its time I don't know
1: it's I mean I think there may be some part of that, but I think also it seems to be trying to draw a lot of lines to one another. I know we keep saying that, but the common theme that I think I'm starting to see with a lot of his movies, you know, from the French connection to cruising to what we're going to talk about with let's live and die in LA is that his, he has a view of authority. And I think specifically with the, with the justice system and that he recognized that there were a lot of flaws with it and that the people who are out here trying to, you know, uphold, Law and order are not necessarily the best equipped people out here doing that, right? They don't see criminals as people. They see them as tools. They see them as, you know, just obstacles or whatever it might be in order to get to the conclusions that they need to get to or try to solve the cases they're getting to. And, like, and there's just no, you know, it's a lot of reckless abandon to try and get their way and it's like well then what what did that end up with right (laughs) it's hurting a lot of people and i mean in one way it's it's an interesting character study to see that he kept going after these types of characters and these types of stories and maybe that's why they weren't so well received because you have a character like popeye (laughs) you know you're like oh what a what a hero and then maybe he's like okay maybe you guys didn't quite get it let me really hammer it home that these are not good people and they're like whoa whoa, what are you you trying to do man come on (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: and that's why another nice part about cruising is Al Pacino I wouldn't say is a all good guy but this is one of the first characters where I'm not like oh this guy is not great you know like he's he's like this kind of young optimistic cop who you know he definitely does things like at times that aren't like the hero mold but overall he's a kind of a different character yet still kind of portrayed in a similar way where you really see him like having to be in these situations uh with the police more than anything like him having to deal with other police becomes such an issue and yeah it's i really recommend anyone check out cruising it's it's very interesting for the time
1: it's definitely on my list. I I think after everything you've said about it and I mean I love a Pacino movie. So and I think this is still back at a time when Al Pacino was trying to challenge himself to do really, you know, edgy things or different things and I mean that kind of shortly after Dog Day Afternoon, which I think is still one of his best roles. Like he's sure. so good in that. And another movie that tries to deal with queer culture in maybe not the most delicate way, but it's like it's something that he wanted to at least be part of. So
2: Yeah, and that's three movies that uh he's kind of delving into that the Justice for All, mm-hmm. um Cruising and Dog Day Afternoon.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, clearly he, yeah, he he saw some some potential with that, which is, yeah, and the, for the time, yeah, very progressive. Um, you know, as far as Friedkin is concerned, though, I mean, we get back to talking about that, you know, he had to kind of figure out his next move after it. And uh, that movie, and it got all that blowback and didn't do quite as well, and did a movie called Deal of the Century, which was <laughs> starring uh, Chevy Chase and Sigourney Weaver, which is a, a satire. Um, that he did in, uh, I think it was 1983. You know, it was kind of panned. <laughs> Not a lot of people thought highly of it at all because I think, I don't know. It, it does kind of sound similar to Cruising. It's about a small times arms dealer in South America who was trying to sell weapons to the revolutionaries. It's almost like sort of like the next chapter of the story, mm-hmm. it feels like. But, yeah, it just doesn't seem like it was ever, I don't know. Never hit quite well, and I don't think Chevy Chase was the person to trust with
0: <laughs> right.
1: that subject matter. But then we do follow with To Live and Die in L.A., which I watched for the first time recently. He came out in 1985, and a lot of people felt that this was sort of a return to form for uh, freakin because they drew a lot of comparisons to the French Connection, but it's mostly just the car chase. Right. like It's not about... I don't know. It's not about anything else. I mean, you're literally just watching a a police officer kind of on a, a collision course with just, you know, death, basically. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just this like kind of like devil may care police officer. He's part of the Secret Service, which I learned a lot about the Secret Service after watching this movie because I was like, why are the Secret Service investigating a counterfeit money scheme. Mm -hmm. Do you know the answer to this? I just assume that that's their jurisdiction. Correct. So the secret service, just to give everyone some background now, so you all know too, was formed by Abraham Lincoln, like literally like days before he was assassinated, but they were not formed with the intention of protecting the president. So there's a little bit of irony in that Mm -hmm. fact. That came later. The Secret Service's job was to protect—they report to the Secretary of Treasury. They protect the the country's money. And that's like their primary job. It wasn't until McKinley was assassinated that they were also charged with the duty of protecting the President of the United States. So— that it was like, I'm like, oh, well, that's crazy. Cause then you, you're following this story where like the secret service is yeah. Like investigating this money counterfeiting and it, it's almost like, oh, wow, this is crazy. Like these guys are, are also have other jobs in the world. And there's like way more secret service men than the, the <laughs> patrol that's assigned to the president.
2: Yeah. It's a great crime shoe lever leather movie, which he does really well. Like I brought up in French connection with like, them testing the heroin and stuff there's like a lot of them uh the criminals doing stuff with the money and it's really taking the time with it or the counterfeit mm-hmm. money
1: i should say yeah yeah and boy and the the counterfeit money s- scheme is crazy to watch because it's yeah it's uh william peterson from csi is uh, richard chance he's this like devil make hair detective who is trying to investigate this uh, case with his uh well at first it's his partner who gets killed very early on by the villain eric masters played by willem dafoe who is very very young looking in this oh yeah and very jarring yeah to see willem dafoe like actually like a a baby-faced like actor but he's still doing all the dafoe things mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah and it's uh you know, it leads on this whole thing of like they're trying to set up a, a sting operation to get this counterfeiter, and it leads to a lot of people getting hurt or killed in the process, including like oh, I won't spoil that, but but yeah, basically it it, it doesn't end in a great place, <laughs> and it really shines a light on yeah just how the you know like people in authority don't really have a lot of regard for the people that they are trying to work with.
2: Yeah. That's another theme with all these movies though, is they don't, none of them really end in a good place.
1: Yeah. They don't really ever have like, Oh look, the detective that, you know, finished the job and he did a great job at it. And he redeemed himself. It's sort of like, uh, no, you kind of end and you kind of wonder what the
2: hell. <laughs> Yeah. It's very much the like, um, like a very dark version of the graduate ending where everyone's just kind of like, what's what now? Like with all this, that's just happened. Where do we go from yeah. here? And cruising has a great one. I won't reveal it Cause you'll watch it someday, but the ending is very much like a, I don't know where these two people, you know, go from here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's definitely. And yeah, that is a reoccurring theme of like, Every movie of his does feel like it doesn't matter who you're following. And and I think what's even very interesting about the stories he's telling, you know, outside of maybe like The Exorcist or, you know, if you want to call it French Connection, that his leading characters are not necessarily heroes. They're presented to the audience as the hero of the story in a way. But as you really watch them, you're like, this is not a person I want to cheer for. Mm. I, and they're just... They are on a collision course with something that is not gonna gonna hold them well at the end here and it's crazy I think that's one of the things I I respect so much about him is that he was willing to like disappoint people and be like this is the story I'm telling it's not going to be a happy ending necessarily you're just take it for what it is and I think to live and die in, in LA definitely had so many elements of you know, you're watching this thing unfold. And at first you're kind of on board with them. You're like, Oh, look at these guys are really counterfeiting, making this good money, which apparently the money was so good that it escaped from set Uh and people were actually spending it in real life, including William. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, if there's money around, I'm going to spend it. (laughs) He's like, I spent twenties from that movie. Yeah. but yeah, I mean, it's definitely it, it's a it's a great turn by a couple actors in that movie. But I think Defoe is the one that really that was that was a movie star making performance for sure. Yeah. So I think. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to say about *Live and Die in L.A.* before I move on. So Wang Chung is the they did the score, and holy crap, that is
2: good. Yeah, I for some reason thought it was Tangerine Dream who does sorcerer. I thought it was them. But no, it's a different like '80s vibe. But it's it. I remember being really good. That's all I remember. A
1: lot of synthesizer. Yeah. Yeah, I. But yeah, I watched. I was watching this, and then when they came up in the opening credits, I was like. Wang Chung. I was like, uh uh-uh. uh. I'm like, they got what one good song? And then I at the movie, I was just looking through their catalog. I'm like, you know what? These guys, they got some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Including uh, the song to live and die in LA. I was humming that for a while after the movie. Oh yeah. Um but yeah, I mean it's it's definitely it's a it's a great movie. It really makes you think about a lot of different things. Uh one worth checking out. So I'm going to list off a few movies that he did afterward because it really he made a lot of other interesting movies, but I don't know that we ever really hit one that hits the same way that that these other ones ever did, right? But you can obviously stop me if
2: you run into no, these other than I have seen Bug and a Killer Joe, but I don't remember them very well.
1: Yeah. Like I mean we have The Guardian, which is one he directed in nineteen ninety, where so this one sounds a little more horror. It's about like a nanny who they hire a, a couple hires to um take care of their baby and she's a magical nymph. Ooh, that sounds good. <laughs> who sacrifices infants to an evil tree. Oh hell yeah. I mean, don't get don't get your hopes up. It doesn't seem well reviewed. Oh, but uh yeah, it's something. <laughs> um then we have jade which a lot of people talk about that came out in
2: 1995 that's like a sexy noir thriller i believe
1: yeah with linda For- Forentino, who uh man i mean i always wonder i was like what happened to her and then
2: yeah you found out
1: i found out yeah not not great <laughs> oh, no 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 yeah but yeah, kind of like, yeah, another sex thriller. Oh, I passed, though, Blue Chips, which I wanted to pay off the whole story about him being a basketball player back in high school. Because Blue Chips is an interesting—and you've never seen it, correct? No. Okay. So Blue Chips is all about um, a college basketball coach who is forced to break, like, rules of the system. Like, back in the day—and now a lot of this has changed—is that you weren't allowed to bribe or pay— recruits from high school to come and play at major colleges so now that's all changed congress made all that legalized so now coaches can go and they save money and they pay like top recruits in the country to come and play basketball or football at these at these places but uh, the whole concept is that uh this coach who was played by nick nulty doing his nick nulty thing you know (laughs) (laughs) um is goes to recruit the the top Players in the country by kind of like offering them things he shouldn't be offering, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen this in a long time. This is actually a movie I saw in the theaters, and it may be one of the first movies I ever saw in theaters. To
2: what be a movie to see first! I haven't I was, seen it, but I'm assuming it's it's interesting. I was one <laughs>
1: six years old, <laughs> six and a half years old, but. My my dad and my sister really wanted to see this because the movie, in addition to Nick Nolte, it's got um, Ed O'Neill, who's also great, JT Walsh, who was a guy you love, oh, yeah. uh, Mary McDonnell, who is great from Battlestar Galactica. But the the big selling points was that it had Shaquille O'Neal and Penny Hardaway, who were at the time like the one two tandem for the Orlando Magic. And this was like Shaq, real early in his career, and like I think even in college, people knew Shaq was going to be a big deal. But yeah, so he's playing like his one of his first movie Mm -hmm. roles, and I mean he's wonderful. He's just pre Kazam. It's pre Kazam, yeah. This movie walked so Kazam could flop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so uh, that was the that was the next one that he did and it didn't get great reviews i wonder how that movie holds up now i'm still imagining it's not a great movie but it probably has something to it just just considering the people involved
2: mm-hmm. yeah and like i thought it was more of a traditional sports movie but now you're telling me it's about like a possible CD side of sports i'm like oh that makes sense why he made it
1: yeah yeah right again a corrupt system of a sorts but again and it's but again it's funny to think about it now because yeah it's those types of things the rules that he was breaking at the time are now i mean i think legal within reason there's a system built in place to that this coach could have probably used, but still maybe interesting to go back on um, I also missed Rampage, which was a courtroom drama thriller, and I'm surprised you haven't yeah, seen that. That came out. In 18... That's
2: on the list. It sounds kind of good. Michael Bean.
1: Yeah, yeah. 1987. That came out. But yeah, then he really just kind of um moves around. He tries to remake. I mean, he did remake Twelve Angry Men in 1997. And it was a made-for-TV movie. I've seen that? You've seen that one, huh? That
2: was the first one I saw before the original. Really? And it's it's like, you know, the original is the original, but the cast is very stacked for that TV movie. Did you see who's all in that? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, I did. Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. Hey, James Gandolfini. Is he got some Tony Soprano energy to him before this?
2: I'm not sure. I when I watch it, I never saw the Sopranos, so I don't really remember I'm trying to remember which character he is in it. But I uh, 12 Angry Men was one that I really dug when I was younger. I was like this is one of my movies,
1: you know. Like, yeah. But I well don't... I mean it's they're all defined by their juror numbers. You'd almost have to like understand what the mm-hmm. juror number mm-hmm what their personality is that they're inhabiting. Right.
2: <laughs> I think he might be the guy who has the sports. Like he's got the baseball game and he's like, ah, let's get through this. I want to play, you know, get to this game. Yeah. I got these good seats,
1: you know, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. I thought it was juror nine. That was like the, the one that originally kind of makes the stand. But
2: I think the one, I don't know who that is, but the, the grump is uh exorcist three guy
1: i can't george c. Scott. george c scott
2: i think he's the that's
1: patton guy. maybe <laughs> i've never seen patton. i i haven't either i just know though he's in that but william peterson's also in this yeah there you go yeah so he's back from to live and die in la right before his csi days it's tony danza mm-hmm um, Ozzy Davis, who is a face that you guys will recognize, I take uh, it back. Tony
2: Danza is definitely the guy who's like, I got sports tickets later. What are we doing here?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's very much his speed. Edward James almost, yeah, Edward James almost is in this, and is Mary McDonald before their Battlestar Galactica days, like Look four years that. before that, yeah. So, obviously, he's got some people that he likes to to revisit. And then, of course, Jack Lemmon, yes. his juror. I think that's the that's the juror who...
2: That's the Fonda role. Who is,
1: like, the first one. I have a reasonable doubt. Yeah.
2: That's good. I just watched... Uh, you know, I told you I watched Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. And, man, that's a performance right
1: there. No, I mean, Lemmon is great. <laughs> yeah. Why do Subway to play shit? I mean, and in a, a movie that I know other people bring up all the time, The Apartment. It is an excellent old movie with Jack Lemon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You ever seen The Apartment? I've heard of it. Add it to the list. That's another one you On can the watch. List. <laughs> we'll trade. We'll trade spaces. So yeah, after he made that, which again I think is another movie that's very much about questioning a broken system. Definitely right cuz yeah i think the these guys are all very set to to prosecute this kid and right and then it's just <laughs> that they, they all realize oh yeah i'm i'm not doing this for the right reasons or i have not considered everything mm-hmm. i don't know we should we should do a whole episode on 12 angry men now i feel like we could do the whole franchise of that play
2: <laughs> and I, I saw it in new york uh on Broadway they- wow yeah it was just pretty i remember enjoying it it had like uh someone from porky's in it and uh there's an actor who if i sent you a picture of him you'd recognize him i know he was in like the game and stuff but he's he's a that uh, guy and i just remember watching it and <laughs> like oh that's that's one that's a guy i recognize him
1: yeah it's. I definitely would, would like to see who the cast was If you can remember it But I think the biggest movies that are left That he made between now and when he passed away uh, Or that time when he passed away Are Rules of Engagement Came out in 2000 um, I know it's got Sam Jackson in it And I think Tommy Lee Jones Ooh. Never seen that one? No, I have not The attorney defends an officer on trial For ordering his troops to fire on civilians After they stormed a U.S. embassy In a Middle Eastern country Ooh, sounds like another corrupt system. (laughs) Uh, Then we have Bug in 2006 with Ashley Judd. And you said you've seen that?
2: Yeah, I saw it when it came out like at Blockbuster, like after that. And it's like a very uncomfortable movie. It's about like a woman who's cheating on her husband with Michael Shannon, I think. It's an early Shannon, Shannon. And he like had... been on like some experiments happen with him and there it's like a very paranoid in one room uncomfortable movie
1: oh interesting kind of like uh i don't know what was i trying to think of like i was trying to think of room 104 i feel like that's almost like taking its whole like basis from that Mm. weird anthology show
2: yeah it's pretty much just a two-hander there might be other members but it's mostly just her and shannon interesting okay
1: Oh, definitely one I might have to visit at some point just because I feel like I want to keep going with this freaking train.
2: Yeah. Seems
1: like one of his weirder movies, though, aside from that Guardian that we talked about. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Um, And then we get to Killer Joe in 2011, which uh, during the (laughs) reconnaissance. And yeah, then we talked a little bit about this one already, but certainly a weird story here, too. When a. That puts a young man's life in danger. He turns to putting a hit on his evil mother in order to collect the insurance. <laughs> That's mm. fucked up.
2: <laughs> I think he's trying to have Juno Temple's sister turn tricks in, and it's, it's a nasty movie, but it also like plays like a well-written
1: play. So it's super engaging. Wow. That's pretty wild. Juno Temple from Ted Lasso. Wow. Early role yeah. for her. That's pretty cool, though. Thomas Hayden Church, Emile Hirsch. Got some people in it, for sure.
2: Mm-hmm, definitely. I think this was one of those, like, Freakin's making a movie. He could probably get some good names, you know?
1: Yeah. How did you feel about this one? I guess now knowing that's, like, one of his latest um, in his career compared to some of his earlier works, I mean, did it feel like it still was Freakin, or did it kind of feel like it was he was doing some different stuff?
2: In my memory, it feels less like his other movies because... I think of it being based on a play It having kind of a smaller scope to it. And it's also like I think it's like kind of it's in the South, Hmm. which I know like he just doesn't do that much in like Southern America. He does deep South America, but like, I don't know, it has like a very Southern. I wouldn't want to say gothic, but like a Southern crime, like more like a Thomas uh, Cormac McCarthy
1: Hmm. vibe. That's interesting. I feel like maybe now I just need to watch it just to really get a sense for it. And now I think I do want to watch it. Although as I was going to say, I wanted to compare the two. He does still have a movie that is coming out and it's called the Kane mutiny court Martial.
2: Whoa. That's a title.
1: That is a title. Um, not too many details out about it yet, but it's expected to come out this year. It's a legal drama. Um, and it's the final movie he filmed before his death. Um, and the film is based on the court-martial scenes of the Herman Walk novel, The Cane Mutiny, which was adapted into a play itself. Yeah, it looks like it was a movie made back in 1954 with Humphrey Bogart. Oh, wow. Definitely interested to see what, what comes of this one. But yeah, it's... I was trying to pull it up. Is there any cast? For this one, yeah, it looks like we got Kiefer Sutherland uh Jason Clark Lance Reddick oh one of his last roles some, wow just
2: some that's an interesting cast
1: <laughs> yeah definitely yeah a few people i don't recognize but yeah one that would be worth checking out i mean obviously it's uh sounds like there was a mutiny here on this guy um where they try and take control from this captain that's not for doing the right thing so i think it's all about the the court case that comes after this mutiny so that kind of sounds like um a few good men a little bit actually i was actually gonna make that connection too with Kiefer
2: sutherland
1: yeah uh, good, i only good, good keep two things
2: by my bedside table the marines code book and the king james bible
1: <laughs> <laughs> i love it you cut them loose so there's a couple things that um we did gloss over when we were talking about Friedkin because I think we obviously focus on him as a director of motion pictures right and like of Hollywood movies but I mean really his life early on was put more into these documentaries that he made and one that specifically I think it, it says a lot about him is that the Thin blue, blue Line? And and the Thin Blue Line, if I recall, is a movie that is about right, like somebody is exonerated from a crime because, like, based on like footage. Is that yeah? Is that isn't not the that same a different
2: thing? documentarian?
1: Who isn't that that uh, Errol Morris? Isn't that an Errol Morris? I thought so too, and I'm like, wait a minute, though. The symbol of wine freaking. There's not a lot about this movie. The documentary focuses on the police force and the experience making it influence Freakin' on the French Connection. That's all that's <laughs> available. Oh, it's the about the American police force and the difficulties they face in combating, escalating crime throughout the country. So not the movie that we know of, of where somebody is exonerated of a crime because they were in footage of a mo- another movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Which I, I thought that would have made been the ultimate connection of him being like, look at the <laughs> legal system. But I guess that kind of set him down his path, this documentary that he made. Um, sure. He also directed music videos, though. A lot for Barbara Streisand.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Babs was great. She really knows how to hold the camera.
1: (laughs) That was kind of Trumpian. I know. I didn't like it (laughs) at the end.
2: Because he kind of has like a Chicago, but like it's not like Michael Mann Chicago.
1: Yeah, not like the Dan Aykroyd Chicago. (laughs) It's more, uh, yeah, more got some some of that like spin on it yeah yeah like Mm -hmm. he's like a chicago cop but people versus paul crump was another documentary he worked on and um yeah i guess actually so hit that movie the people versus paul crump was a documentary he made and won an award at the san francisco international film festival and contributed to the commutation of crump's death sentence so he did make a a documentary that actually got somebody <laughs> out of uh, their death sentence. So that's pretty, pretty crazy. That wasn't even the right movie. That were talking about. <laughs> What a, what an interesting connection though. Huh? Mm-hmm. Not a French connection in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I did want to call out, cause I mentioned he did a couple of things on the Hitchcock hour um, or the Alfred Hitchcock hour. He also did an episode of the new twilight zone, the one in the eighties, not one i'm familiar with though it just sounds like it's about like stalkers and something like an oil lamp that can grant wishes there's another segment in there but then he also did an episode of tales from the crypts and it's not one i'm also familiar with either but it's about a guy who gets a tattoo and he learns that it might be just more than any ordinary tattoo
2: Ooh, that sounds good.
1: Yeah, <laughs> now I feel like I gotta watch that one. I don't recognize any of the cast really in that other than uh Tia Carrere from um Wayne's World. World. Yeah, so I don't know. Any other thoughts though, just on Freakin's works, or do we want to start doing some coulda, woulda, should Uh,
2: before we get to that, I would just say, um, the other documentary that was more recent in 2017 was The Death of, and Father of Mort. Who uh it's about exorcism and it actually follows a it follows the Pope's Exorcist, the character Russell Crowe plays in (laughs) The Pope's Exorcist. It's about the real guy, and that's one I have not watched, but is also on my list because I'm kind of curious. I'm not really interested super by exorcisms, but I'm interested in him making another sort of like a documentary in that world.
1: Yeah, or just to kind of explore things that maybe he didn't get to say during The Exorcist because he had 50 years of retrospect to kind of think about it. Or I guess that's 40, my bad. But but yeah, that'd be an interesting one to watch. Um, Any other things you wanted to call out? Because yeah, I mean, he definitely did a number of documentaries. And I wish I knew more about the documentaries because it seems like he was pretty passionate about these things, and I think that's, that was a great call-out to know that he did a recent one, too, that was very much after something that intrigued him.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I th- I think that, that about sums it up for me. I'm ready to coulda, woulda, shoulda, but it's a hard one.
1: Yeah, well, hit me with what you got on your mind.
2: I mean, I would love it if he would have made another uh, horror movie. You know, I mm-hmm. like horror I just think I would have liked to have seen a horror movie that was like in the same vein, just different sort of setting.
1: I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could definitely get on board with him trying to explore something that maybe wasn't so supernaturally driven and maybe just explore. I, I think he, he taps so well into the psychology of people. Right. And that would have been really interesting to see him kind of like do something like a, almost like a rink or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Where it's like, people think they're seeing this stuff throughout their house, but maybe it's more about who they are and like what they've gone through. You know, like I'm thinking of is the Duke, like that yeah. type of movie, like him doing something like that.
2: Yeah, I agree. I definitely wanted to be character driven, but I do kind of want to see a supernatural twist because of, he can really put those vibes out there that are spooky. And like, I like, I just want you to watch the end of Sorcerer because To me, the end of Sorcerer, a guy who likes Sorcerer a lot is Stephen King. Mm. And it kind of reminds me of a Stephen King book because it just goes off the rails in a glorious way, like the filmmaking. I feel that's how some of Stephen King's books. So that'd be another coulda, woulda, shoulda. I couldn't tell you which book, but I would have loved to have seen him adapt to Stephen King.
1: Yeah. You know, it would have been a good one for him to adapt on. I'm even kind of thinking about it. I feel like he could have done a really nice job with the stand. Just from what I know about that. Because it is so much about the people, right? Mm -hmm. That are living in this like broken society. And he clearly loves to call about that or call on that system.
2: Oh, yeah. Give me a part one and part two stand like two movies like dune or something
1: <laughs> oh man even dune and maybe to see him do something maybe a little more hard sci-fi would have been a fun adventure too not not necessarily like, you know what he really would have done well was like minority report yeah like, put, put that in his hands yeah instead of spielberg but i still think a minority report's one I need to revisit. Oh, you need
2: to cause it is one of my favorite Steven Spielberg movies. Wow. I love
1: That's, it. I like a I like a movie that a lot of people didn't love at the time, including myself. I saw that in theaters. And I remember coming out of it being a little underwhelmed. And then I but it's a movie you keep thinking about and you're like, Boy, what the heck was it about that movie? And I mean the concept is so intriguing. Like and the morality is so intriguing.
2: But mm-hmm. yeah. And Max think, von yeah. Sydow, I think, or is yeah. it is it Christopher Plummer? I kind of get them confused sometimes.
1: Uh, I think it might be von Sydow because it might have been a nod to the fact that I think von Sydow was in that 1985 commercial with like the Apple or the the Mac, oh,
2: um, okay,
1: or computers. Yeah, it is von Sydow. Yeah, yeah, so I think it's supposed to be a commentary about Big Brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know, though. As far as other coulda, woulda, shouldas, I guess, I mean, yeah, I would have loved to have seen him do, you know, maybe some other documentaries, just because I feel like now documentaries are really getting... Um, a lot more love and recognition and maybe seeing him try to go after something that would have been a more like less of the true crime stuff that's going after like what really happened with this murder or you know but more like I don't know just trying to investigate this system you've watched a lot of interesting stuff uh, that's been coming around around the Oscars and just about like you know like the prison system in America or about I don't know octopuses that can teach us things mm-hmm. <laughs> octopus teacher that's what i meant <laughs> no, it, was, it was a joke <laughs> although a freaking documentary about an octopus being somebody's best friend i just wanted really it to be narrated fun. by him we all <laughs> have
2: friends some are
1: octopuses yeah, this one's got your back with all eight arms <laughs> all right what do you say we get into some power rankings before we let this run too long? Huh?
2: I'm ready. I'm anxious.
1: All right. I'm ready. So without further ado, let's talk about the top three freaking films that you've seen.
2: Yeah, I think, and honestly, it's it, it could move because I feel I want to do some rewatches, some reappraisals, and I think I need to have stuff sit with me. But I might put To Live and Die in L.A. as my number three. Wow. All right. And All right. I would put sorcerer as number two. And number one, I would just go with the exorcist. But I don't think that spot is safe for the exorcist. Mm. I think with time, stuff might move around. But that's where yeah. I'm at right now.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good good three. Um, Because I think... Well, I have to finish Sorcerer. So right now, I think I've only ever seen four freaking movies. Oh, no, five. I'm sorry, because I did see Blue Chips as well. I mentioned that. Um, <laughs> Blue Chips would not be a top three for me, mostly because I don't remember it as well. But also, I mean, I think for even if I had watched it recently, I don't think the subject matter is going to resonate because the the subject matter doesn't really apply. Right. <laughs> to the same way. So I think it's going to be a movie that doesn't age well. Um but I think Sorcerer right now would be number three for me, even over French Connection. I just don't love the French Connection. I don't feel the connection <laughs> with it that other people do. I respect what it did for movies. I respect the, the quality of the movie. But if I'm putting it in my power rankings, I'd be lying to you. So it's, it's going to be uh, just missed the top. But sorcerer from what I've seen so far excellent a, a master class in suspense and and just trying to explore you know what people will do when their backs are against the wall and they are looking for a way out you know um two I would probably still say is uh gonna have to be to live and die in LA I, I like the movie a lot I thought the soundtrack banged but um there's definitely, there is some elements I, I really wish that movie would have hit a little bit harder, <laughs> but it was, it was great. Um, the Exorcist is going to be number one, just because one, it's easily one of the movies that scared me the most in my life. And we'll be talking about a movie coming up in a couple of weeks that uh, scared me more than The Exorcist. And that, that was a, that was a high feat. <laughs> it was unseated uh, in my, in my personal rankings in horror, but I think I've really appreciated Uh, the gifts that exorcist can give later on that go beyond the supernatural elements. We didn't even mention
2: the tubular bells.
1: No, we didn't mention any of the, uh, the symphony or what am I trying to think of? The synthesizers, the synthesizers in that movie, but yeah, the, the bells in exorcist, the music is, is great. It's, it's a complete movie. The whole thing from top to bottom is great. I think there's something to a director, and I think his lasting mark. When your movie cover, like the poster that people know, is a shot from your movie. Drawing great there. It's not not Matthew McConaughey and Kate Hudson <laughs> standing back to back in front of old green screen. You know, it's it's a shot that you got. Like that's like the best, I think, compliment to your craft right. that And I don't think we talked enough about what a visual artist he is because he really, really knew how to capture a scene. And I don't think anything says it better than that exorcist poster of um, Max von Sydow standing outside next to the, the lamp looking in the house like it. You don't even need to know what the movie's about to know that there's something very unsettling about that scene. And I mean, it. I think that's why it's his, it's his best movie. <laughs> yeah,
2: and that's why they use it as the opening scary movie, too.
1: <laughs> James Woods. Oh, God, her, and it had to be James Woods, it's too. It's pretty <laughs> funny,
2: though, when he walks in and he sees her all exorcisty, and he goes, fuck this, and he tries to leave.
1: And like, uh, bring yeah, him back yeah. in. You
2: know who was supposed to originally play that part? Who? Marlon Brando.
1: Oh, my God. That would have been hilarious. He showed
2: up with an oxygen tank and could barely walk, and they had to say no. It oh, was pretty far along at that point.
1: That's too bad. That would have been an all-timer ridiculous thing. Um, But, yeah, I think we, we are very in agreement on our number ones, and I think, yeah, you know, there will be a time when I think we'll have to look back at some of these rankings that we're doing on this show and really evaluate do we still feel the same way maybe we'll do that for an anniversary special one day yeah. but I'd love to hear how the freaking rankings end up shifting as time goes on
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that gets us to the end of our episode Fred but is there anything you would like to plug before we go
2: oh, I'll just plug the pod or I'll just let you plug the pod you do it so <laughs> eloquently
1: <laughs> I'll run through this real quick uh, we are um, at state of the franchise podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to send us an email with any feedback or questions you have for us, we're always happy to read that stuff. Um, we are on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, threads, YouTube, uh, we're, we're exploring new social channels, and we're we're happy to get our, our word out there. We're putting some fun photos out there for you guys to look at and links to listen to. And, of course, we're at buymeacoffee.com SOTF if you'd like to drop us a donation. Helps us keep the show going. Uh, biggest thing you can do, though, is rate and review us. Uh, we have uh, very few ratings, and we would love for you guys to leave us a review some feedback star rating it will go a long way honestly it'll take a minute out of your day and it's gonna be worth it all the way um but really we appreciate you guys listening every week it has been almost a year now fred we'll have some exciting stuff coming up yeah but next week or next time we'll be talking about chef alton brown some good eats Good treats save, <laughs> uh, save some space for us Because you got to come hungry
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, come hungry To the podcast about food <laughs>
1: <laughs> We'll see you then Bye got
0: no cares Because all I want to do Is charge my phone And drive me some energy And what they taught you About we